Today's episode of Future Says is proudly sponsored by Oracle. Oracle offers integrated suites of applications plus secure autonomous infrastructure in the Oracle Cloud. For more information, check out www.oracle.com. On today's episode of Future Says, we have Peter Campbell, the Financial Times' global motor industry correspondent. Peter speaks with authority and knowledge about industry trends, technological breakthroughs, electrification, mobility as a service, and the rise of China as a manufacturing powerhouse. Peter also chairs the FT's annual Future the Car event, where he interviews industry leaders like Elon Musk, Lauren Stroll, and Jim Farley. Peter Campbell, welcome to Future Says. Thank you so much. Peter, you know, you've been in the automotive sector now for, I think, about seven and a half years at the Financial Times. What first drew you to that space and what makes you most excited to be in that space now? So I think there are lots of things about the car industry that are fundamentally very exciting and very interesting uh, when you're writing about the industry, right? It's a sector that touches on everything, right? You've got manufacturing, you've got supply chains, you've got retail, you've got consumer habits, you've got a lot of technology. Um, It's global, it's hugely global. All the businesses are kind of everywhere. Uh, It's very, very political. It's hugely entwined into geopolitics. So you look at the really big geopolitical events over the last few years, um, the auto industry is, is wound up at the centre of lots of those, right? So Donald Trump's trade war with China, Brexit, uh, the kind of industrial shutdown in the early weeks of the pandemic, the consumer recovery, issues now around tensions with China, uh, issues around you know everyone pulling things out of Ukraine after the Russia-Ukraine invasion. All of those things the auto industry has found itself right at the heart of. And now, as well as that, you have these huge changes that are going on in the industry, which are going to fundamentally change the definition of what a car is right, within within the next few years. Because for the best part of 100 years, a car has been something that you own, that you drive, that runs on fossil fuels. And all of that's changing, right? That's all changing because there's a number of disruptions that are coming to the industry, any one of which would be enough on their own to disrupt the industry, but they're all coming at the same time instead. Right, we're going to go through them, I guess, in turn, but you've got electrification. You have the potential for self-driving in the future. Uh, You have data and connectivity. You have new forms of ownership. Any of these would be a huge industry-changing disruption happening, but they're all coming simultaneously. And so the industry finds itself in this kind of fascinating position where all of the car makers see these changes happening. They all know they have to change something to survive, and they're all taking fundamentally different views on it. Right, so they all see the same input data, and yet they all make massively different strategic choices. So it really is an industry. Some people say at a crossroads. I think it's actually way too sim- simple. Uh, you know, it's actually an industry you know, entering a labyrinth, right, in which no one has any idea about which the right way to go is. And then on top of that, you have some absolutely fascinating personalities to write about. Elon Musk, obviously, I guess we'll talk about him. Uh, and he certainly, he, particularly his appearance at the FT Summit last year. Uh, and you also have, you know, you had Sergio Marchioni who ran Fiat. You have some of these great, huge global personalities. You had Carlos Ghosn, uh, that very famous escape from Japan. You've got Carlos Tavares. You've got Lawrence Stroll. You've got a whole bunch of these people who j- are just fascinating to write uh, about and, and talk to and understand as well at the same time as as writing about the industry as well. So, I mean, there's just, you know, almost every single corner of the industry is exciting and fascinating. 
And fundamentally, people care. People care about this industry. Right? So, you know, governments care about their car makers. They're a source, huge source of national pride. You know, lots of people care about cars uh, and care about car makers. And, you know, I used to write about tax in one of my previous uh, beats that I did for another newspaper. And no one ever used to come up to me at parties and ask me about tax policy. But everybody wants to know about electric cars or self-driving cars or something like that. So it's it's a it's a fantastic sector and industry to be writing about, and particularly at this time of just absolutely you know, seismic change that's going on. And and you mentioned already some of those personalities, Peter. And I had the the pleasure of being at the FT Future the Car event this year, and it was an amazing event. And I'm very excited to go back again next year. And like you said, you had these conflicting personalities. You had. Uh, the Ferrari CEO, who's very much an engineering by an engineer by trade, you had the Polestar CEO, who's very much a a designer by trade. Then, of course, you had Lauren Stroll at Aston Martin, who has a very business driven, almost a fashion orientated background. So, for you as a master interviewer, you mentioned Elon Musk in twenty twenty two. Who is the most fascinating person to speak with? Uh, well, that's very kind. What you said about the summit, thank you. Uh, it's what well, I mean. It's very hard to top Musk. Right, because he he came to last year's summit, or does he dialed in? So he dialed into last year's summit. We'd agreed he'd speak for an hour. Um, he spoke for about an hour and a half in the end, and we kind of covered everything from Tesla, Twitter. At the time, he'd he'd announced he was going to buy Twitter, but hadn't done it yet. And he came on and said, "Oh, I can't really talk about Twitter because it's a live deal." And yet, we then spent the next. 20 minutes talking about Twitter and you know he said he'd let Donald Trump back on and all this stuff so it was it was a fascinating uh, discussion but then you know we got into tunnels and the kind of economics of induced demand and we got into SpaceX and he said humanity needs to become multi-stellar we can't just be in this solar system to survive so I think big picture thoughts don't get much bigger than that but I mean he's a he's a fascinating guy because if you look at what he's done with Tesla and as much as the car industry spent many years laughing at or trying to ignore Tesla, I think they now realise that they can't. Um, you know, he was the driving force, not behind all of that. It's very kind you called me master interviewer. Um, uh, I, I don't really get terribly phased doing big interviews because it's sort of my job. Um, but for that one, I was quite conscious that, you know, there were something like a quarter of a million people watching live online because we live streamed it on YouTube and the FT website and various other things. And I was also quite conscious that Elon Musk is incredibly smart and, you know, is going to know more than I do about any of the particular rabbit holes we find ourselves in. I've got to say this year's summit, which you mentioned, we were very pleased we had a large number of people no one's really heard from in the auto industry. So the Ferrari CEO really hasn't done very many public appearances since taking the job. He was not in the auto industry before. He worked at a tech company. Um, we had the new CEO of McLaren, who also had not really spoken in public before, which was very interesting, particularly when you had Ferrari and McLaren and Aston Martin all on stage, all talking about wildly different approaches to the future of supercars and high-end luxury and performance, nothing else. Um, we had the Nissan CEO who very rarely speaks uh, in kind of Western events. And we had the CEO of Geely, and Geely is one of the most interesting companies in the in the kind of automotive world at the moment, because it's Chinese and it's private and it has Volvo and Lotus and Polestar and lots of other brands. And we're going to get onto China, I'm, I'm sure, but it's, it is just one of the companies really worth watching. And its CEO had never done a public session like that before. So we were very pleased to get all of those guys 
to come along and kind of you know share their various thoughts on the future so you've mentioned uh, geely there and i think for people let's say newer to the automotive industry they won't even know who geely are and you've mentioned geely are the holding company of many of the biggest automotive brands at the moment so there's a lot of new entrants into this automotive space over the last few years and will continue to be can you give the listeners a bit of an update on who are some of the new brands and what makes them particularly unique so there's 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 kind of two sides to that question. One is EV startups and one is Chinese businesses, right? So let's take them in turn. An electric car is much, much simpler to make than a combustion engine car, right? You and I could not build a combustion engine car together. Um, but we could probably have not a bad fist of launching an electric vehicle because fundamentally it's uh, a chassis, a battery, motor drive system top and some wheels and that's basically it it's much much there's much fewer moving parts than there are in a combustion engine um, which remains kind of one of the all-time historical engineering pinnacles that will probably never be bettered and um, and so with the industry going towards electric vehicles it's suddenly much much easier to get into it there's much lower barriers to entry tesla has blazed away first we've obviously seen that but you have tons of other companies that have come in all trying to do slightly different things or trying to do slightly different types of vehicles um but there were, you saw i think there was a three-year period in which everyone was doing a spac which is a um special purpose purpose acquisition company which is basically a way of listing on the stock market without going through the usual uh, disclosures and needing to reveal quite as much information about yourself and um, fundamentally is an easier way for businesses that aren't terribly viable to get onto the stock market. And there were almost, I think there were about 20 companies that listed this way over about three years, all of which were trying to break into the car industry. Now, some of them people may well have heard of. Um, Lucid is a very big one out of California. It's run by Peter Rawlinson, who was the chief engineer on the Tesla Model S. Um, they make the Lucid Air. They're backed by Saudi Arabia. They have quite a lot of money. Another big one people may well have heard of is Rivian, uh, which makes electric pickup trucks and SUVs and makes delivery vans for Amazon. Amazon's one of their big investors. Um, they've got a very, very, very impressive young CEO called RJ Scarringe, who's um, sometimes be called the kind of next Elon, who's, who's phenomenally impressive. Um, and then you have a whole load of other car companies uh, which are trying to start up. And the problem, there are some advantages. There are definitely some advantages to being a startup, which is big car makers are cumbersome. They are slow. They have lots of ingrained processes. That means things can take a long time. Um, they have a big legacy operation of the way that things have always happened. They're often very heavily unionized. And startups have, you know, different investors, fundamentally investors that certainly early on in the startup EV wave didn't really mind about making money, which is quite useful when you're fundamentally entering one of the world's most capital intensive industries. Um, but there, there's kind of one thing that counts against the EV startups, and that's that, that making cars is actually very hard. Right? I mean, all the car makers have been doing it for 100 years, and they still find it hard. Tesla went through this very famous period that Musk called production hell, where uh, at some, you know, they ended up building cars in a car park in a tent because they couldn't get the main production lines to work. And at one point, they'd actually messed up the supply chain so badly that they were building cars without seats or computer modules, shipping the cars to dealers, and then flying them the seats when the seats were ready 
and saying, oh, do you mind sticking these in before you sell them, please? Uh, which is not exactly best practice. And so Tesla got through production hell, but all the other car makers are now discovering how incredibly difficult it is to make a vehicle on a modern manufacturing line because the car industry uses something called just-in-time, which is where you buy in your parts. Rather than holding parts for your cars, you buy them in to arrive at your plant uh, sometimes days, sometimes hours before they're needed on the production line. And basically, if you mess up that sequencing, your line grounds to a halt and it just doesn't work. I mean, I remember going around Nissan. Nissan has one of the most impressive car factories of the world in Sunderland in the UK. And um, it's, it's one of Nissan's best factories anywhere in the world. And I think the old stats, this is from a few years ago, but I think this, it has 23 hours of shifts. And I think if the plant stopped for something like six minutes, during that 23 hours of three shifts, it lost money. I mean, the, the, the margins for error in this industry are so tiny. And just one other example, if you look at someone like VinFast, which is the Vietnamese car company that's tried to come from nothing in an incredibly short space of time and make EVs. Now, we had a piece a couple of weeks ago alleging that they've cut lots of corners out of their development and safety testing. and But they've tried to launch their car in America and... It has been absolutely slated by the car reviewers, saying it's not ready, saying it's the worst car they've ever driven, all those sorts of things. Making cars is really hard. It's really, really hard. And so what you're seeing at the moment is almost all those startups going bust. I think most of the startups have, the Western startups have issued what's called a going concern warning, where you basically say, we don't have enough money to last the next 12 months. Because these guys raise lots of money. Um, but they were years away from making revenues, let alone profits, revenues, like any actual sales. Um, and the other problem that you get with startups is that they, you know, sometimes they're so excited about being a startup and growth and hiring and everything else, they just completely lose discipline. So there's a case in point, which is Arrival, which is a company based in the UK, listed in the US. It was actually the UK's large, most valuable ever listing of a British company when it's backed in the US. Um, and yet Arrival has weeks or months to live because everything went wrong. They completely overstretched themselves. They tried to do too many products. The products they did didn't work. Um, they had uh, a test of their only vehicle for their largest customer, UPS, and the van caught fire. And then they wheeled it out into the car park and it melted the car park. And, uh, you know, they'd spent lots of other money on stuff they didn't need. They tried to have a new factory system that no one had ever made work before. They'd made a vehicle in the factory claiming that it proved the factory worked, and then it subsequently emerged uh, with a piece that we did last year that actually most of that vehicle was hand-built. Um, and then they laid off most of their staff, and then they said to their staff when they were laying them off, oh, by the way, we're ring-fencing this side project, which is the CEO's side pet project, uh, called a jet in order to build an aircraft. The other side of the startup question is China. Now, China is really interesting in this because China has a whole load of car makers that are owned by uh, state entities in China, local, local governments. It also has a whole load of car makers that are private. And basically, China kind of missed the boat on engines, right? Chinese engine cars weren't terribly good for a lot of years. But any car company in the West wanting to sell in China had to do a joint venture. And so the Chinese car companies learned a lot through that about making cars. And so their manufacturing got pretty good. And now China sees that battery cars are coming. 
And China has made itself the world leader in batteries. Um, Europe at the moment is the world leader in engines. I, you'd say Japan and Detroit are also on that podium. But China is undisputedly the world leader in batteries. And so China basically sees the electric vehicle revolution as its chance to take on the world. Right? And it says, well, if we, we do batteries and do batteries better than anyone else, we're going to be, you know, we're going to own the powertrain of the future, right? We're going to have the technology crown of the future automotive world. And so you've got a lot of Chinese car companies that are thinking about this. Geely is one of them. Geely made engine vehicles and they still make engine vehicles, but they bought up a load of brands. They bought up Volvo was their first big international deal uh, around 2010 when they bought them for Ford. But since then, they've, they've got a controlling stake in Lotus. They've got Polestar, which is spun out of Volvo. They have uh, the London Electric Vehicle Company that makes black cabs. Uh, and they have stakes in Mercedes. Uh, they're about to do a big deal with Renault. They have a huge number of brands that they've sort of, you know, this huge sprawling empire they've built up. And I remember once having dinner with the boss of Volvo quite, quite shortly after Geely had begun building all these stakes in these businesses. I remember saying to him, what are they doing? Right? Do they, do they uh, want to become China's Volkswagen? Volkswagen obviously is the world's biggest car maker at the time and has you know, tons of brands. And the Volvo CEO said, oh, no. No, 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 they're far more ambitious than that, um, which was a great joke, obviously, but also happens to be true. Um, so, you know, they're incredibly ambitious. They also have a big stake in Aston Martin as well. Um, and then you've got others like BYD. BYD is very interesting. It's backed by Warren Buffett. Again, made cars in China with engines, but has now pivoted to making only hybrids and electrics. And BYD is hugely vertically integrated. They do their own batteries. Uh, they make almost everything on the vehicle apart from the tyres and the glass. That gives them a big advantage in, in terms of supply chain sourcing. Um, and also they sell batteries to lots of other car makers as well. And so BYD is one of the ones that actually everybody needs to watch in the next few years because they are just starting to export. They're coming to Europe. Um, they're going to go all over the world. And so they're going to be incredibly big. But there are tons of new Chinese car companies, EV car companies coming up. And yeah, there'll be a withering, you know, some of the winnering, some of them will, some most of them will die. There will be some really big ones that emerge that become serious global players in the future. And even if they, even if, you know, people continue to drive Western branded cars or Japanese cars or, or American cars or whatever, in Europe or anywhere around the world, in the future, it's still quite likely those cars will run on Chinese batteries. So even if there aren't Chinese brands, uh, even if you don't drive a Chinese brand in the future, it's very likely your car will use a Chinese battery in, in years to come. And how we how the world responds to that, how Europe responds to that. America has begun with the Inflation Reduction Act to think about that. But again, this is another example of how the car industry finds itself at the kind of absolute crest of the wave on global trade at the moment, which is just going to be one of the kind of politically defining discussions we have over the next decade. Um, of course. That's a very long answer to your question, I know. <laughs> and an excellent answer at that, Peter. Um, of course, we spoke a lot there about batteries and electrification, some of the new brands within this space. Um, so is it all electric? Is that the complete end of the combustion engine or are there alternative fuels? What is the future mix within this automotive world? It's a great, it's a great question. The, it depends if you're looking at it technically or, or um, politically. Right? So technically, yes. Well, technically, the internal combustion engine 
only runs at about 30% efficiency. So you could do lots and lots and lots of things to improve the efficiency of that. And there's lots of other options as well beyond electric. Well, within electric, there's loads of options. There's different battery technologies. We had NMC, which is very common. You now have NFP, lithium ion phosphate, which is increasingly common because it's cheaper and it doesn't use cobalt, which helps in the supply chain. You're going to have some sort of solid electrolyte technology in the next few years, which people call call it solid state. All of those, and and then people talk about sodium batteries and various other things. So there's lots of, even within electric, there's huge technological changes, and we don't know yet which of those proves to be the Betamax and which of those proves to be the video. Um, Sorry, if you're young, I hope all your young listeners can follow that example. I've just aged myself catastrophically there. Um, uh, So within electric, you've got that. But then actually, there's things like hydrogen. Hydrogen fuel cells are very efficient, uh, have long mileage, don't have the recharging issues of batteries, because if you get hydrogen at a filling station, it fills up in the same time as petrol. Um, Fundamentally, the question around this comes down to energy storage, right? So the car industry is not decarbonizing in a bubble. Everything is decarbonizing. So the energy system will have to decarbonize. And once the energy system decarbonizes, you need a way of storing renewables because everything's renewable, but demand is not fit with supply because of consumer patterns. And so you will then get a, you know, you need to store that energy. And so it'll either be stored in batteries, maybe maybe static batteries, maybe in car batteries, or it'll be stored in something like hydrogen. Now, hydrogen has an efficiency problem that it's incredibly inefficient to create hydrogen and then store it and then put it in a vehicle. That's a, that's a big problem in terms of energy efficiency. And at the moment, it's a very carbon-intensive process. But hydrogen could be a solution for storing energy in the future. The problem is all the vehicle rules at the moment are being set by regulators with, I don't want to call them artificial timetables, but they're pretty quick timetables. Because understandably, because of the climate issue, right? And I mean, as we're as we're talking at the moment, you know, you've got Greek islands that are on fire and people being evacuated, and wildfire season is starting. And it's only July, and we all saw the Canadian fires, and you know, the other month. And so it's a it's you know, people. It is undeniable that there is a climate problem going on that needs to be addressed as soon as we can. And so regulators are setting these decarbonisation timelines, and in the UK, we'll have no cars that aren't fully zero emissions sold by 2035. In the EU, it's around 2035 with a very small carve out for e-fuels. America's talking about half its fleet by 2035. China has targets. Everywhere is setting targets for these things. Um, As the technology stands at the moment, most of that means it's going electric. So basically, the car companies see this change happening. They don't have that much money, the car companies. They do not certainly have the money to spread their bets across batteries and hydrogen and, 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 right? They just don't have that many chips to place on the board, particularly because they also have to invest in things like software. Um, and so they are broadly in Europe, most of them are going all in on batteries. Some of them aren't. So some of the um, longer term, more patient car makers are trying to spread their bets. BMW is looking at hydrogen, Toyota is looking at hydrogen, um, but broadly, most of them are looking at batteries. And it's quite likely you know, hydrogen will be used for a lot of applications. It'll be used for heavy trucking. There's also l- other heavy freight, you know, shipping particularly. You can't use ships with batteries. You have to do something there. Aircraft will have to decarbonize somehow. So again, all of transport's decarbonizing. Batteries are suitable for cars and suitable for some trucks. 
And so it's possible that the world's hydrogen gets used for other stuff or other fuels for other things. Now, you mentioned clean fuels in there. Clean fuels is a debate in Europe with e-fuels, which are sort of, um, they're carbon neutral, I think is the most generous thing you can say about them. They don't reduce carbon, but they don't put any fresh back into the atmosphere. Um, re- some of the car companies were lobbying for this, but not very many. The EU buckled on it. Um I don't realistically see e-fuels being a major part of slowing the EV rollout, if I'm really honest, in Europe. And then you've got the, you've got the global issue here as well. So Europe's going very fast for EVs. China is moving very fast in tier one, but obviously has a long tail of other cities. Uh, the US is trying to move fast, but has a very large, very rural population. It's going to be difficult to take with you on that journey. And fundamentally, you've got issues like Latin America, where... It's very difficult to see electrification working on the grounds of, you know, the local power grid, affordability, all of those issues. Um, you know, people don't buy on consumer credit in Brazil because interest rates, even when the rest of us were in a ridiculously low interest rate environment, interest rates in Brazil for consumer credit is through the roof. So no one buys cars on credit. So suddenly the whole, it's fine, you can get into an EV because you can lease it, which is the discussion we're having here in Europe and the UK, doesn't apply. So there's, there, there is going to be a very, very long tail of internal combustion engines for a long time to come in large parts of the world. And this is why someone like Toyota is batting so hard for hybrids, right? They say, look, Latin America is not going to go for electric and Africa is not going to go for electric. And so why don't we sell them hybrids? Because those are cleaner than selling them other vehicles, right? So that's, uh, admittedly, Toyota is the world leader in hybrids. Um, but, you know, it, 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 um, decarbonisation is fundamentally a global issue and an issue far beyond the car industry and far beyond what we often think of as the EV transformation that's happening in Europe, which is the kind of crucible of electric vehicle sales at the moment. And so we need to have a really big global picture when we're thinking about the pace of decarbonisation, the challenges of it, uh, how much it actually makes a meaningful difference to carbon emissions within cars all of those questions we need to look at globally, which is what makes it so hard. And regulation is, as you know, set regionally or nationally by regulators who want to do something by a certain date, um, sort of irrespective of what that policy means for what happens outside those regulatory borders. I think that's the thing. I mean, clearly the priority or the the big driving force but, but for electrification and moving to battery technology is for the climate, is for sustainability. Um, and there's been such a focus on tailpipe emissions. But do you think, you know, there's also these reports, Peter, that now there's more emissions from the tires, there's mining practices, there's battery recyclability. You know, are electric vehicles as sustainable as the manufacturers make them out to be? Or is there more that auto OEM should be doing to, to increase the sustainability of, of their products, of their vehicles? There's a lot more that they can be doing. They are looking at this. One of the reasons that LFP battery technology really came on in the last couple of years is because everyone was concerned about cobalt coming out of the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the mining practices there. So they're definitely aware of this. They were looking at scope two and three emissions. They're looking at emissions and supply chain. I I think they are well aware that, you know, if you are making electric cars and you are using dirty mining and those cars, when they're on the road, run on the dirty power grid, then, you know, you haven't made any difference whatsoever. But all the research actually shows that electric vehicles, 
you know, take more carbon to manufacture. Yes, batteries, mining, etc. Um, but they claw that back pretty quickly, actually, on the roads with a car. Um, so that is definitely that is definitely a, a thing and an issue. And the car makers are aware of this, and they're getting some of them are getting more heavily involved in the batteries and the battery processing. Partly that's to secure supply, but I think you're going to see more vertical integration as well in the industry. Some of them are looking at mining. I mean, when Musk was at the FT thing last year, he talked a bit about potentially getting into mining. And so I think they're I think they're aware that they have to reduce the emissions in their supply chain for this actually actually to work. So clearly automakers very focused on electrifying their fleet at the moment, but we haven't yet spoke about automating their fleet and autonomous vehicles. In a couple of weeks, Peter, we have the chief scientific officer at Renault on the podcast. And I know he has kind of surprising views actually on autonomous vehicles where he believes level five is actually impossible. And level four has to be the, the goal. And then you have our friend Musk saying, you know, overnight we're going to have our chat GPT moment and people are going to wake up and all of a sudden their cars are robo taxis. Where do we sit? What's realistic? Well, Musk's been promising a fully autonomous vehicle next year for the last however many years. 16, 17, I think, was the first one he made. There was a clip on the internet I saw about about it. So, look, it's two things to say about this, right? One is it's a really hard problem. Right? It's a really hard problem to solve uh, in terms of in terms of getting a vehicle that can drive itself, even within a geofenced area in all conditions, right? I mean, everyone, you know, remembers learning to drive Controlling the car is not the hard bit. Controlling the car is quite easy, right? even those of us who learn to drive on manual vehicles. Um, the hard thing is taking account of everybody else on the road. And so that is why you're seeing all the early you know, lane-keeping systems and stuff work fine on motorways because it's quite easy. Um, but it's really difficult if you're in a built-in built urban area, bicycles, dogs, children, milk floats, all of that, learner drivers, all of that stuff. Very, very hard to, to get a car to work that way. There's also, and I guess my industry should take some of the rap for this, there's definitely a hype cycle, right? So we have economic cycles. We also have hype cycles. And I remember a few years ago, everyone was saying, you know, GM will have an autonomous fleet by 21. Ford will have an autonomous fleet by 21. These other things will be there by 21. And none of them are here, right? Um, um, and, and partly it's because that problem's really hard. There's also a big regulatory issue, which is not, which is talked about a little bit, but is basically um, how safe do they have to be before you allow them to go into the wild? And if the question around autonomy is saving lives, and we'll come back to that, if the question around autonomy is saving lives, humans kill roughly a million people a year on the roads. About a million people die a year on the roads. Globally, Ninety high 90% of those is human error. So, you know, humans kill a million people. How many people is it acceptable for robots to kill? Right. At what point does society go? Yes, it is fine for robots to kill four hundred thousand people a year on the roads. No, it's not. I mean, you look at media coverage when you know there was a single fatality involving a Tesla vehicle running on autopilot uh, or its 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 alleged self drive system. You know, every time a Waymo vehicle has a fender bender. People write about it. You know, it is not acceptable for for a robotic system to be involved in a to cause a fatality. And so regulators have to decide where they want to do this and when they'll allow them. And if you you know the first deployments have been in Phoenix, which is basically built for cars, 
um, very difficult to see that working in older European cities, right? You're not going to get it to work in Brussels, where there's trams and people, and you're not going to get it to work in Edinburgh or in London or in Berlin or anywhere. It's just very, very hard to make those things work. So there's a regulatory problem. And there's one other kind of interesting thing that I think is really not talked about in autonomous vehicles, and that is why we're doing it. I say everybody knows we're doing it to save lives. And, you know, Musk talked about this last year at the summit. All the people who do it talk about it, save lives. In reality, most of the fatalities on the road are caused by speed, distraction, uh, or intoxication. So Volvo, who'd kind of been a world leader in safety for forever, did a huge study on this a few years ago. And they basically said a third of accidents are speed, a third of them are distraction, a third of them are intoxication. And so you're going to get very unsexy technology in cars that's going to save a lot of lives without being noticed. So you have automatic emergency braking coming in in the European Union. Um, you are going to get driver monitoring systems in cars. Now, this is this is, gets us into big brother questions and all sorts of things. But some of the cars already have it. Some of the cars with um, lane advanced lane keeping technology already have a system that watches the driver to make sure you're keeping your eyes on the road. And Volvo talked a few years ago about having this system where a camera will watch you. If you're on your phone, it'll prompt you to get off your phone. If you don't, it'll stop the car. If uh, if you're drunk, it'll monitor your eyeballs. If you get in the car and you're drunk, it won't let you start the car. Um, and it'll speed limit the vehicle in certain geofenced areas like round schools. And so those technologies, and you know, people talk about Big Brother and people talked about Big Brother when Volvo, Volvo put in seatbelts, right? So people will get used to that. Um, that technology will, in decades, I don't know when, but at some point become very, very widespread in vehicles. And that will solve almost all the fatalities in the areas where it's done. At which point, how many fatalities are there left for autonomous vehicles to, to eliminate? Not a vast amount, actually. At which point you go, well, why are we spending billions doing this? Maybe it's business models, right? There are genuine business models that will be opened up by autonomous vehicles. You look at commuting time saved, um, people can work on the commute. Uh, you look at the kind of, um, you know, Uber previously talked about eliminating drivers. Uh, they've stopped that now, but they talked about eliminating drivers and that'll change, you know, the economics of robo taxis, which still fundamentally is economics are very difficult. There will be, you know, driverless freight, all of that stuff. There will be, there will be business model applications of full autonomy, but it's not realistically going to be saving lives. Once we get to the kind of time where you get level four, let's call it level four, being ubiquitous in major cities. Um, so that is, a, that is an element of this discussion uh, that is yeah. not often talked about hugely, actually. Yeah, I agree. Like you said, the primary objective has always been to save lives. But if that's going to be impacted by other technology, maybe you dip into those secondary objectives around computing time. Commuting time. Interesting. Um, on, on the topic of automation and technology, um, you mentioned the hype cycle around autonomous vehicles. There's also definitely a hype cycle at the moment around artificial intelligence in general. Are you seeing CEOs, are you seeing auto OEMs talking about other key use cases for artificial intelligence outside, let's say, the vehicle? You mentioned manufacturing already. What other areas do you see that technology impacting? Obviously, AI has a you know huge number of actual things within AI, and we often we often focus on whatever is the sexiest at the time, right? So people used to talk about AI being machine learning, and now we talk about, you know, large language 
systems and and chat gpt and all those things which we just will catch under ai there are um a number of potential applications within the car industry i had dinner with a couple of car execs a few weeks ago who were saying that they actually use chat gpt for a lot of their social media posts that they write the interesting thing i think potentially in terms of applications is data so the one thing that the car industry talks a lot about is data so all the vehicles are connected through huge you know, amounts of technology in the vehicles, throwing off data around driving behavior and road habits and weather and you know, people buying coffee on route and all that kind of stuff. And that is only going to get more and more. And there is going to be a big battle for the software interface and platforming vehicles in the future because that's going to become one of the key selling points of cars in the next few years. Um, and but the problem is the companies have no idea how to use that data. But it's a vast pool. So if you find some way of pulling out data from it, uh, pulling out information from it that's serviceable, that is definitely an application. If you look at companies, say, for instance, like Uber or, or kind of ride hailers, huge implications for those guys who have, you know, um, vast, vast data pools, huge customer history. How do you deal with that on a customer service interaction basis? Do you have an AI scrape someone's history? to give you a better understanding of them when they come to have a problem, something like that. Really interesting, Peter. And, and when it comes to AI, obviously we're talking about automakers, but when it comes to your job being a journalist, how is AI or large language models, ChatGPT, impacting your life? First of all, this is not my specialism, but there's definitely a, a realisation, I think, that this is hugely important, right? It's probably the most one of the most significant new technologies that the industry has faced since the advent of the internet, which, as we know, completely torpedoed traditional business models. And so we know that it's going to be hugely important in terms of what we do in the future. And also, fundamentally, what you're seeing at the moment with, with uh, generative AI is it is changing. You know, previously, you wouldn't believe something unless you saw a picture of it or even a video of it. And you're seeing now that actually, though, that can be faked. Um, and so there was a huge issue of trust here, right? And do people trust where they get their information from? And the FT places um, an absolutely massive priority on reliability and accuracy. You know, we, we have to have a 100% trustability record, right? With the stories we write, and I know this from experience of trying to get stuff through that we've discovered. And do we know this is true? Do we have this from multiple people? Every single fact we write has to come from at least two different sources in different positions who know the same thing. Whatever we do with the AI, we have to have a position where people know they will come to the FT and they have something that is 100% accurate that they can 100% trust. doesn't mean AI doesn't have a place in what we do. If you look at the things it's really good at, scraping vast amounts of public information that would take, that would be kind of unfathomable to mine, you know, public data records, numbers, crunching, that kind of stuff. Um, fundamentally, I think there are lots of things it can't do, even 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 with future technology developments, just because of its very nature. So its very nature is it has to be trained on public data or on available information. Well, fundamentally, the big part of what a newspaper does is find out new information people don't know, right? So the really big, <clears throat> really big stories that I've written in the past, that we've written in the past, are eliciting new information from people about what is going on inside businesses, right? Whether it's about the stuff we talked about, about the rival previously, which was not public, whether it's about the investigation we did into VinFast recently, which was information that was not public, 
you know, whether it is getting people to tell you something, chief execs or other people inside businesses. If you look at the big FT successes in the last few years in terms of investigations, particularly Wirecard, it was this huge German financial company that was that was massive and uh, turned out to be, you know, uh, wildly fraudulent. Then actually, you know, that kind of stuff is at the core of what a newspaper should do. And that is something that AI simply cannot do because it cannot find new information that is not already public. So there's a huge, there's a limit to what can go on. And I, I mean, we, our, our editor wrote a public letter recently saying there were some things we won't do. You know, we will never use it as part of our content or writing. And so there's a there's a, a definite question going on at the moment about what use it has, but also an understanding that AI, generative AI, produces stuff that might not be correct. So we have to understand its limits. We have to understand its uses. There will be uses for it, but we have to keep dividing lines so that when people come to, you know, a brand such as ours, such as the FT, they know that what they are paying for is true and accurate and trusted. And so whatever, you know, however AI shakes out in this, that has to remain absolutely central. Because if people cannot trust what we what we write, then our our entire selling point goes out the window. Yeah, and and I think that question of trust as well for a brand like the Financial Times is as important for brands like the the car companies that now own a lot of our information as cars become more and more central to our lives. That question of trust has to apply to them as well. Are they doing enough from a software perspective to protect information? Peter, are there any concerns about that? And as we move to this model, which is more direct to consumer, and we're interacting more and more with the automaker rather than with the dealer, how does that impact this? So I think there's a couple of things in that. So there's there's the shift to direct consumer, which all the car companies are kind of aware that there is a chance now for them to get have a direct consumer relationship uh, rather than farming apps to the dealers in the future because that gives them all the data. They will find ways to use that data and that data could potentially be very lucrative in the future. Um, and, and I think they actually all take data protection seriously and in the way that any other serious big corporate does. So I don't see that being a massive issue. The big question is what you do about software and software that faces the consumer, because fundamentally, most people who get into new cars today uh, want to be able to use their phones on them, right? They want to be able to use Apple CarPlay or Android Auto or something like that. And people are quite used to, you know, if cars become less about what are the driving dynamics, what's the horsepower, and far more about this is a functional product that I can use to travel somewhere and do other stuff at the same time. And so people expect that they can use their phones with them. You've got a kind of um, digital life at the moment that people use through their Apple or whatever. And if you have that, you want to be able to use that. You don't want to have to switch to another system when you get in your car. Um, some car makers are thinking about doing consumer-facing software that is their own, that, you know, I will get in and it is my Mercedes system or my, my Volkswagen system. And the car makers do that because they want to have the consumer relationship. But fundamentally, do I really want to have another whole ecosystem I have to get used to when I get into my car? Which comes down to a question of scale, right? Now, I can the fundamental problem with in-car software is I can take my 
iOS from my house to my car, and I cannot take my Volkswagen operating system from my car back to my kitchen. Right? So people are used to living with one system. They will want that one system to work. And that potentially is a real challenge for the car makers because, you know, let's be honest, for all its shiny consumer-friendly sheen, Apple is very good at getting in early and cutting other people out. That's what they do. And Apple sees cars, and particularly CarPlay, as a, as a, a new arena for getting data and relationships. And that, I think, is a huge challenge for car brands in the future, because why should you buy a Renault over a Peugeot over a Volkswagen? Because fundamentally, all electric cars are pretty good. Um, is it around the technology inside the vehicle? At which point, what's the differentiator if you use Apple on all of them? So it's a huge question for the car makers. And the other issue is that software, you know, the car makers are really good at hardware. And we talked about this with startups. Um, what the car makers are not really good at is software. Software is miles outside of their comfort zone. They're suddenly fishing in the same talent pool as Google and all the others. And they have a real, uh, you know, it's really hard to make software. Just as the software makers and the startups are discovering it's hard to make cars, the car makers are also discovering it's hard to make software. Like Volkswagen did a load of software and it just wasn't very good. Um, it was clunky. It didn't work. It delayed some of their launches. And it's, it's probably part of what's led to an absolute decimation of their electric vehicle sales in China, when China is one of the most tech-conscious markets on the planet. And so you, you have this big issue. Software is a huge issue for the car companies, uh, and they need to think about how they address it. And it's really hard because good software is very difficult. Good coders are very expensive and very rare, and there's a huge fight for them. And fundamentally, it's the next battleground in terms of consumer adoption is on software. And this is another issue where the Chinese companies have great advantage because I've driven a bunch of the Chinese EVs. As cars, they're fine. They drive very nicely. But you get in and they just work. right? And the same, you know, integrate my phone, all those other things. The same cannot always be said for every electric vehicle made by a Western car maker. Yeah. So with that, Peter, I know we could talk for another couple hours and hopefully maybe at the end of the season, Peter, we'll get you back on. So in the next few yeah, weeks, sure. we'll hear from other auto leaders from the likes of Magna, Nissan, um, who else? We have ZF, we have Volvo, we have BMW and more. Um, but as sort of a summary of, of the last 45 minutes or so, Peter, can you give us a brief prediction on how we as consumers will drive in five years, 2028, and maybe in 10 years, 2033. A huge amount of that answer comes down to where you are and who you are. Right? If, you, uh, if you buy a new car and you're in a very developed market and you're pretty rich, you may very well be driving an EV within five years' time. Um, other people will take far, far longer. Whatever new car you drive in five years' time will be connected and will probably have CarPlay and all the software issues we've talked about. In 10 years' time, it's far more likely you'll be driving an EV. You may be driving a new EV. But you certainly, almost certainly, won't have autonomous systems on it yet within 10 years that allow you to do all the great things that we see in all those futuristic you know, videos where cars are pods with throw cushions on them. Um, you won't have that yet in 10 years' time. Certainly not that can let you drive everywhere. And so change is going to be slow, actually, for a lot of consumers in this industry. EV, I think, will pick up much quicker than people expect. 
broadly because EVs are better than people think they are. Um, other changes will come in more slowly, but the problem for the companies is that they have to think about these changes now and today, and they have to start making their big bets for the future and today. And just as we talked about at the start, they have so many choices to make. They're in this labyrinth. No one knows the best way to play in software. No one knows which battery technology wins. No one knows if vertical integration is the way to go. No one knows you know, how to beat the Chinese at cost. No one knows how to navigate all of the political waters we've got going on at the moment. No one knows what the next 10 years throws up. And some of those who take wrong decisions might not survive. So it's it really is an absolutely huge moment of change in the industry, which is what makes it so fascinating to talk about and cover and watch. Uh, and so we'll watch the next 10 years uh, with enormous interest. Amazing. Us too. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks for your time. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again in the future. No, an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining. Now, next on the show, we have Dr. Luke Julia, Chief Scientific Officer at Renault. Hope to see you there. <laughs>